0: Welcome to the Emerging Pod where we guide emerging professionals into emerging careers. Today's guest is David Sully. David is the CEO of Advai. We met at Technation and Investor Networking Event. VI is a leader in the growing space that is AI security. They advise organizations like the National Cybersecurity Center and CSC on machine learning and AI security policies. Welcome David. Good to have you. Hey, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career journey? How did you end up the CEO of Adli? So fairly randomly, but
1: I think like most people, basically a long and winding career where started off coming out of university, I ended up being overseas for a few years around US, Brazil, South Africa, Austria, and then ended up settling back in the UK as a headhunter and a, a recruitment consultant for a couple of years. Then after that, I joined... The government. So I've been a diplomat for 12 years and served overseas and in the UK doing lots of things like UN negotiations, arms control treaties, things like that. And then for the last two years, I've been running Advi. So left to set up a technology that we were really interested in and I couldn't find in the UK and I could see an application for it. And yeah, we've been going strong ever since.
2: That's awesome. So can you tell us a bit more about Advi AI and how What's the specific problem it solves? How does
1: it work? Essentially, we set up to explore initially something called adversarial AI. So it's a really niche area of machine learning about uh, where it's possible to trick and manipulate and deceive an AI system. So a really core bit within AI adoption and whether or not it's safe to adopt. And we started off doing a lot of research around that. And over time, we've started to expand into AI robustness as a whole. So why does AI fail? Because actually it can be around something really niche and really advanced, like adversarial AI, somebody manipulating an input into an AI system so that it changes its classification, but equally, actually, there's a much bigger problem with AI just failing. Like why does it fail? And you have two different problem sets there where it's accidental failure, which is obviously really important, particularly in systems that everybody is depending on. But the other element is if a bad guy identifies why a given AI system is going to fail, then they can use that against the system as well. So it doesn't need necessarily advanced technology. It can just be actually, I don't know, a a Tesla will react really badly. If you put a stop sign by the side of the, or, you know, healthcare, actually, it can get much more advanced where actually a bit of data poisoning can create an awful catastrophic effect. So we look at it across that breadth of it, and we've got some really advanced researchers. We do a lot of work. We've got half of our team is data scientists and looking at cutting edge research into the area.
2: That's a really fascinating space, and it's a hugely growing field. How do you think about structuring your team then when it comes to building your product? How did you think about it starting off, and how do you see it evolving over time? Do you see any role for students
1: within that? yeah absolutely so for us we definitely term ourselves as a a deep tech startup and by deep tech i mean it's a technology that everyone is learning as they go along we are finding new applications for tools and technology that we develop so there's a huge amount of uncertainty in it but essentially everybody who works in it everybody who looks to invest in deep tech they see a long term potential that is potentially really impactful and so for our technology it's about ai be able to be deployed safely and if you can say that then brilliant that opens up a massive market now when you're coming to something like deep tech it's not necessarily about just about experience experience is really important so we've got half of our researchers hold PhDs and they are extremely talented, but the other half are straight out of university. And so they've got masters and it's about approach rather than just knowledge. So with what we're doing, literally I can probably com I can confidently say that maybe like 60, 70 people in the world might have an idea of some of the really advanced stuff that we're doing and understand it and how those implications are going but even within those 60 or 70 people none of us actually know all of the applications for that technology so it's all about actually mindset and not being intimidated by that so when you're looking at recruiting for me i'm looking for people who are willing to embrace that uncertainty and go this is really interesting I'm really enthusiastic about it. I don't need a roadmap in front of me. I'm actually much more interested in exploring how to get to the ultimate objective of what's useful to an end user and work with the development team to understand what on earth can we do with all this technology that we're developing and how can it be interpreted for that end user usefully? So we're we're looking for not just proper data science skills. That's obviously important, but actually we're looking for that aptitude in somebody that they can go, yeah, this looks really interesting and really fun. I was wondering then, do
0: you have a couple of stories of people that you've interviewed and how they've shown you that they were embracing the unknown?
1: Yeah, I suppose it's not so much stories, but this is a common aspect with almost all of the people we've taken on is, so we have three stages basically. And this is all because of my head hunting recruitment background. The first stage is with me and I am not a technical whiz. We, I have much, much more clever people than me. So the reason that the first stage is with me though, is to talk about the company and likewise understand that candidate's approach and what they are interested in. And for me, really important to everybody is like this cultural fit, this approach, this like ability to be a bit dynamic and a real inquisitiveness around the the topic. And what I'm looking for is basically a discussion about what I have as a vision for the company and more importantly, when I say that vision to them, what does that inspire in them? What does that make their brain do? Does it suddenly make them click and go, Oh, have you thought about this? And I want it to be a two-way conversation for me. And I know this isn't for every company, but this is like in a startup. I think this is really important. So that's stage one, and then stage two is, with Damien, who's our chief researcher, and that gets a lot more technical. So that's actually exploring CVs, like what they've done, coding capabilities, things like that. And then we actually have a third stage where we bring in other members of our research team or uh, the wider company to interview them as well. And that's more just so that the candidate can also get an understanding of who on earth would I be working with? Can I get on with these guys and girls? Do we, are we all going to be quite creative together and. One of the really important things is that we need when you're dealing with such uncertainty, you want everybody to feel confident talking and like just raising their hand and saying, what about this? And they might have it wrong. So you can't have anybody feeling intimidated, basically. So, yeah, we structure it really logically like that. And it seems to work really well. So the candidates we tend to go for are the ones who are who come across with that positivity and that inquisitiveness and like. You can almost see the ideas being generated during that process
2: that's really interesting actually we recently had a chat with someone we we're looking for someone to help out with marketing um, the content management because of the podcast and a lot of things that we're about to launch and we had a quick interview and just from the very beginning she got it she got the idea she got the vision she started thinking about how she would do the role she did a lot of research beforehand so she knew exactly what we were talking about she saw our trajectory and our story and how we got to this place. And it was just, it's exactly one of those moments where we, the the second we started talking, it clicked everything. And it was magical. It was really nice. I've heard a lot of companies that's like startup best practice for the CEO to be involved in the hiring process, sometimes up to like the first 500 recruits. This is the first time I hear of the CEO being the first stage in the interview process. That's, I think that's quite interesting. And I think it makes sense because there's no point spending time with someone on the technical, testing the technical side, if they don't really get excited by the vision and by the mission of the company. So I think that's a very interesting approach, but how do you filter out? Do you have some kind of pre-screening process or are you spending most of your time in these first round interviews then?
1: Yeah, bear in mind that we are still small. So we've tripled in size this year, and but when I say tripled in size, that's getting up to you know nine or ten people from three. So that's not a still ap- triple. Trying to interview, yeah, four hundred, but four hundred and ninety applicants. That I'm going to struggle with that uh, all of that in the future. Um, <laughs> we'll find four hundred and ninety positions, but we get an awful lot of applicants though for a single researcher role. So the last one we advertised, we had four hundred, and when you're such a small company, that's an insane amount, and. It's. I just use a lot of principles that I've done in previous headhunting, and this is really worthwhile bearing in mind if anybody engages with a headhunter or a, a recruitment consultant. When you are faced with that number of in, uh, applications for a role, you have no choice but to weed down very quickly and, in a way, really brutally. And it's therefore really worth spending time on your CV to make sure it looks good. Never lie on it. You're going to get find out. But if you've got the skill set and the job description says, actually, you need Python and I don't know, whatever SQL or whatever it is, try and make sure that's right in there at the very beginning of it. Don't put it further down, hoping that somebody will identify it. Now, the difference being that's with a small startup when it's us doing it, when it gets into very large companies, you've got to be aware that actually it might be using a machine learning system to identify and pick out cvs that they're actually looking for so look through the job description for the job that you're applying for look for the words that are in there and almost copy and paste them in as long as you've got that experience Uh, make sure that those words are in that cv because it might be a machine learning algorithm or it might be a recruitment consultant who has no idea about the technical area of that industry Uh, they're just word matching
0: that's very interesting and yeah definitely a testimony for to encourage students to take a bit of time to personalize CV, because it's very easy when you're a student and you're applying to a lot of different companies to just make something that one size fits all and just blast it out. But it just, it will have an impact on, it will impact your chances of success.
1: What do you think is uh, uh, the future of the CV? Can we do better as a society? Uh, It's you guys that need to work that out, surely, Uh, but I think, I do think that For me, so much comes down to personality as well, which is the one really difficult thing amongst all of this is you're probably disregarding a load of people that actually could be very good. And it's just because maybe they're not so good at drafting a CV and that really sucks. So that bothers me a lot, but at the same time, especially when you're looking at a lot of CVs and where a lot of applicants, there is like a it's almost like you feel like you get some of the character of somebody in amongst it and so there's i don't know there must be a, a there's got to be a careful balance between how you diversify how you like keep that tech like that context or that texture of it, like that the personality of the individual in there as well as trying to make it yeah you've got to you've got to even out the landscape as much as possible and make everybody it so that they are the best that they can be, I suppose, is the best way of approaching it. But how you do that's very challenging.
0: You mentioned the format of the CV, and I know at least from my experience going to university, different people have, especially whether you're in tech or you're more into social studies, the expected amount of effort that you're supposed to put in the formatting of the CV is very different. I guess, where do
1: you stand on that? For me, what I'm looking for is just something that's really clear, easy to read. So it's not sort of like, lots of jumble everywhere, or like trying to look too flashy. I want something nice and simple. I want to see, when it comes to things like data science, I want to see coding skills right at the top. What immediate like, skill set do they have? And then it depends on the experience of the candidate. If they are coming from university, I want to be seeing the projects that they've worked on and explained and ideally tallying with job description that we've got. And obviously that's very challenging, but I want to see some enthusiasm for the projects that somebody has worked on. And you're not like writing an essay or anything like that. It's still just bullet points, but you're just really saying, so, oh, this was in year two or year three, this is what I did. And this is what I found out. And I used this model zero or so whatever it may be for the, for it. And these were the results, if it's from, if you're, you've got a job already, then just Change the order of things so that, remember, you're not going for the same job that you've just had. You're going for the job that the company has. And so the company understands that you don't want to be doing exactly the same thing again. What you're doing is you're applying for something that you want. And it might be that your current job, 20% of the time, is doing the thing that you really want to do in this next job. Don't put the thing that you've been doing for 80% of your time in that job first in those bullets. Flip it around. You've been doing it. As long as you can say the skills and you can back it up with evidence, and somebody is going to say on a reference check, actually, yes, Alex has been doing this, then that's going to be enough. It's more important that they see that skill right at the top and that it relates to the job description. So those are the little tricks that you can do where it's not lying. It's genuinely what you're skilled at and what you're doing It's just, you don't have to have been doing it every single day of your career up until that point. In, in some ways, I don't want to employ somebody who's been doing the carbon copy of what we're doing, because I want them to be doing the next step on in their career.
2: That makes sense. I think that's a good piece of advice. Understand the role that you're applying for. Do a little review of your own skill sets and figure out, okay, which of my skills best apply to the role to the objective of the company to where the company wants to go and just put them right at the top, focus on those. And I think you mentioned projects and that kind of brings to the idea of portfolios. What, what do you think is the best way in which students can talk about their projects? What do you think it's useful to see? Is it more of an inventory of skills or the way that they did a project, how they thought about the steps that they took to achieve a specific outcome? Is it the outcome themselves? It, the outcome itself. What do you think is
1: an important area to highlight, or how to structure of that communication about a project? It's a really good question, and I'm just trying to think how I've seen it represented on some of the CVs that have come in. I think so. Conciseness is everything. So you need to get as mm-hmm. much into into a small amount of space as possible, because the reader has to do this in a short amount of time. I'd say you just what you wanting to just drive home. It's so like the really crucial key bits that you're most proud of as fast as possible. There is also, there's a sales technique that I find quite useful. And this is like, I mess with it a little bit. It's called situation, problem, action, resolution. If you've ever come across that and it's a sales technique essentially for laying out first of all, what's the situation? What was the problem? What did you do and what was the result? And it's an interview technique as well that can be quite powerful for when you're interviewing is how to explain a problem set to somebody and what the positive impact you had uh, was. And that's something that you can consider as long as it doesn't go into war and peace, because <laughs> you still need to just a small section, but, but you can say situation problem, we, I was working with a pharmaceutical company or something like that, trying to identify X action that created a. AI model for the result, actually, you've got 80, 90% accuracy on this, uh, we'll be taking an forward to uh, trial or whatever it is. And you can do that very quickly, I think, in four bullet points. I have a
0: question actually to, it's changing a bit topic, moving away from the CD, but I want to know what is it, how is it like for you as a non-technical person? You're now leading technical AI company. How do you keep yourself in touch with what's happening? And how do you build the vision for your company to be able to do that?
1: It becomes harder and harder over to, so, because when you're starting out and it's only three of you, you're all talking to each other all the time. And it's like you're learning every single day as you get more and more. And it becomes as CEO, you're getting more and more management duties and payroll and HR and everything else is all there. And business development gets bigger and bigger. That becomes more challenging, but as far as it goes for me, so like I'm non-technical, but I say I'm non-technical. It's just my technical skills are so epically outdated as in I used to code in basic on like BBC computers, acorns and things like that back in the old days. But like that is not really relevant to anything that we do now. So I've always had an interest in and in an aptitude. I think. The thing for me is I've got a vision of what we're trying to do, and that's obviously worked out with the people who have much more technical expertise. My, my job though, is not to be into the nitty gritty details of how they do it. So high functioning teams essentially operate when you say, this is what we're trying to achieve, and then they are allowed to work out how to do that. And what the path to getting there. So what you've got to do as a CEO, though, is also have the humility that actually, you know, you've got to keep an eye on this might be wrong and I need to empower my team so that they can tell me that this vision is wrong. And actually, the vision shouldn't really necessarily just come from like the CEO. It needs to come from the team as a whole, because when you identify something that maybe you weren't aware of before, that might be more valuable to the company than what you're currently doing. And that's where pivots come around airbnb it was originally for couch surfing and then somebody realized actually people don't want to just sleep on people's couches there's a much bigger opportunity when it's entire private rooms or entire private houses or slack i think came from an internal development tool within a company that was failing and then they pivoted and just broke out slack as itself you know it's not coming from necessarily the ceo's vision it where the revelation comes from is like when somebody says, actually, CEO, what are you talking about? This is much better. And so it's a two-way process. Basically. I'm I'm not really on this Zuckerbergian sort of like vision of this is my way or the highway. I own 54% of all voting shares regardless of what anybody else owns. And yeah, I think that's pretty dangerous to be honest. It's
2: very true. That's an interesting, point, and yeah, I think Slack was a video game company. They're working on a video game and whilst they were doing that, they developed their own messaging system and they're running out of cash. And then at some point, one of their investors, I think said, Hey, you have this, why don't you try to sell this? So they did and it worked out. We're no strange to pivots, strangers to pivots as well. The advantage that we've had was that our team's been small. So how do you, how do you build structures? within the organization to get that feedback loop from people. I suppose it's two, there's two aspects. One is like a structure of how do you manage communications, but then also the culture people are allowed and should speak up and should give their feedback candidly without being afraid of whatever, any repercussions if they're, if they think that let's say the direction is not the best one. So have you given much thought to that? Or I suppose you're thinking about it as the company grows, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, an awful lot. This is definitely one for asking me in a couple of years time, but I think, so there's the principles. So I care about everybody being able to speak up and feeling comfortable with that. I think that I've got thoughts in mind. So one of the things I really like doing is with our company at the moment, it's always worked really well. A lot of our breakthroughs have come when we've all been in person. We've had a dedicated and space to think about a problem. And we, I love whiteboarding, like coming up and brainstorming ideas and getting everybody together for that. And up until now, we've been able to do that pretty much with like most of the company, if, if not all of the company. But where I see that going in the future is actually, cr- when somebody comes up with an idea or an idea, like a potential product or like a research development or something like that and you're like going, how do we use this? The way that I want to be doing that in a larger company is to be bringing together people from across the company in different functions and blending the technical and the non-technical people, because everybody has a different viewpoint on it. And you've got product people who are just thinking or should just be thinking from an end user perspective. You've got research team who are starting just from technology based principles. You've got to blend all of this together. And others might come from a completely different perspective. And we've definitely had cases in the past where somebody has just gone, oh, what about this? Can't you do this with a, that? And it might be a naive question, but it's fallen out into something really useful. Our first patent came out that way. So, yeah, it, or our first patent application. at least. And it, yeah, it comes from... Mostly, it's my stupid questions. I definitely throw out the most stupid questions that get turned down most, but I'm looking for those stupid questions from as many people as possible. There are no stupid questions. Yeah, that's what I like to say. Well, yeah. <laughs> you should see the frowns on some of the team when uh, some of mine. That's
0: interesting. And I think, yeah, what you're describing is because we hear a lot of established companies that are now trying to use data science and AI. And one of the challenges that the people in the business don't speak the language of the data scientist and the data scientists don't speak the language in the business. So by establishing that culture of, you know, everyone can ask the questions, you're breaking that barrier and making sure that is essentially aligned on the problems that you're solving and uh, the goals you're trying to achieve.
1: Yeah. I think there's an observation that I've got at the moment on data science is, and I think this is a, a reflection of the intelligence of a lot of the people that are doing or approaching these problems, but there's this thing within data science where like, data scientists love to try and get all of the knowledge into their own head. It's like they're trying to just collect the world's information into one brain. And sometimes it's really healthy to just go, you know, you can talk to somebody else or you don't have to know everything. And. I think one of the problems in data science in general is actually we're really strong believers in the MLOps lifecycle, as in like the whole business has to be ready for it. And there's got to be data that feeds back into it. It doesn't, it's not like a development pipeline where something comes out the end, goes, deploys and it's perfect forever. It's got to relearn, it's got to carry on. And I know that's like MLOps basic best practice, but actually That means that your whole business needs to be talking to one another all the way through. And that's massively challenging. And it means you need to have that communication through very different areas of a business that might be very siloed. And I think this is one of the big challenges that very large organizations are having with AI ML is getting all of those silos to talk to each other. That's super interesting. Can you describe a bit about, The MLOps cycle. Oh, yeah. Now I'm going to put my foot in it. But essentially, by MLOps lifecycle, what I'm talking about is you've got your data collection, you've got your model training, you've got model verification, post-deployment, and your monitoring of that model post-deployment. But then, obviously, that kind of comes around in a continuous infinity loop where by actually things are constantly shifting in a business, in an environment, and the model needs to be like you've got to collect up more data, label it. We train the model and it's going to evolve over time. So you're going to get drift in the model, it's going to change once it's deployed. And that's extremely challenging. Like how like a lot of I think problems in AI ML that we see are essentially a business going, Oh, I've got this big chunk of data. What can I do with it? And how can I apply AI to this? And not thinking about all of the subsequent bits, and there's if you look carefully, there are some staggering industry like statistics that are starting to come out about 85 to 87 percent of AI models failing on deployment, oh. on it being hugely challenging. But nobody really talks about the failures, they talk about all of the positive successes, and the challenges like getting all of that in place, talking to lots of people, making people aware of like how challenging that is and it's like making sure that all of that, like the conditions for success are there. That makes sense. That's super
2: interesting. What are the different roles that you need to build that MLF cycle and sustain it?
1: So I think, so it literally, this is a, how long is P, is a piece of string kind of question, because <laughs> it depends what industry you're in and what you're doing, but. You know, you need it, everything from, it might be from literally sensors picking up something in manufacturing in order to collect good data through to your data scientists, through to, you know, your floor managers on like making sure that maybe cameras aren't altered in position or like lenses stay the same. Like your supply chain needs to be uh, the same because the way, for example, computer vision detects objects isn't the way that you and I do it we look at outlines and shapes and shadows and things like that computer vision doesn't it's a texture it loves patterns and and the texture of things so when you change the lens on a system that is like looking at I don't know the tensile strength of a beam then that might create a different texture for that computer vision system that it hasn't seen before and that's not a data science problem that's a Somebody down in the supply chain decided to change the lens on that camera. So this is the challenge with a lot of data science applications is Mm. what we're trying to do is apply it to a very challenging task, which on the surface, you go, oh, that's really easy, or it should be really simple. And especially when you get into unstructured data, so things like computer vision, actually these systems just interpret the world very differently to a human. And the way that we think through problems and the way that AI interprets inputs, it is just very different. And that's what we're trying to essentially do is try and bridge that gap between what the AI interprets and the way that a human thinks and hypothesizes about the problem.
2: So we've covered up a lot of ground. I just wanted to maybe wrap it up a little bit and leave listeners with some thoughts on... What do you think is the impact of the current economic climate on graduate recruitment, because you have the perspective of a hiring company, but you also have your recruitment background. So what do you think is likely to happen? How should students think about the coming months, a year, or should they prepare?
1: So there is a chance that what we're about to go through in the next 12 months is like a bit of an implosion of a bubble, basically. And it's all led, not necessarily by that. There is an argument that it's all led essentially by tightening of funding in the U S from the fed, but also through Europe and the UK and from central banks. And basically that doesn't sound like it should be a problem for everybody, but essentially what's happening is that's having butterfly effects through the whole system and the challenge that. I worry about most is basically that will impact funding streams around innovation. For example, innovation in downturn is like an area that actually often funding gets withdrawn from VC funding. It can become more complicated because they the VCs themselves aren't getting the funds in that they were before. It makes everybody nervous. And I witnessed this in 2008 when the Lehman Brothers crash happened and Like I sat in this room where we had 40 consultants and I was one of four by the end of a month and it was brutal. So that's what happened then. I don't know, no, I don't think anybody can predict what will happen now, but that's the sort of like stuff that you go through and it's rubbish while it's happening and think when you're looking at like when somebody listening to this is looking at a business or like a startup. Do you think about so what are the fundamentals? Don't be afraid to ask the person that you're interviewing with about the roadmap for the business. If it's a startup, ask about the runway. The runway is the amount of time the business has to survive on the existing income. That's a really important thing if you're making a judgment on what to do. And you know these are all like important things anyway. I think in the next twelve months they're going to be even more important. But the thing is, if like anybody could actually predict what was going to happen that they're going to be making a lot more money on the financial markets rather than running companies or anything like that. I think all you can do is just take the next step and you take the best decision that you've got available to you and just try your best and remain resilient and really go for it. But it might mean that the tech industry, jobs and things like that, maybe jobs will become more competitive, but I really don't know at the moment. I think it's a bit too early to say, but it's just going to be the same as ever. You've just got to take the next step and do the make the best judgment call that you can with the information available to you and you just want to make sure that the person that you're interviewing for has got their head screwed on and is you know thinking about things sensibly and you know what are the long-term opportunities for the business and and what's it going to do if it gets worse that's a good piece of
2: advice yeah i've heard from some people that actually in a downturn companies tend to hire more graduates or they tend to cut the costs somewhere mid-level managements towards the top because it's much more expensive and in super large organizations, sometimes it's not even justified. So I hear conflicting kind of views, but you're right, I think it builds a lot of resilience and the people that manage to weather the storm will be that much stronger from it, individuals and companies.
1: That is, so the consistent thing I have been told is that essentially companies that come through a recession tend to be really well positioned for at the other end of it. And it's really simple because essentially the big companies that drive the entire economy, they buckle down during a recession. They don't spend on like crazy ideas and things like that at the end of a recession, they're then they're going, Oh, we've got this money that we've been sat on and we've got to do something with it and what's around. But obviously the number of companies that they can spend that on has reduced. And so actually, that's where the opportunity comes from. It's basically that easing up, and that's when seemingly a lot of very large companies have actually been created are post-recessions, as all of that expansion comes up, and people are willing to take risk. This
2: was a really great episode. Hope you can come back in a couple of years' time, maybe when you have, I don't know 500 employees and see if you're still doing the interviews one by one.. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks very much.